I'd invite you once again to turn, in me, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 19. <clears throat> Acts chapter 19 as we continue our study of this great book titled Acts of the Apostles. This is a first century history of the early church. Those of you who have been here for the last 15 months don't need to hear that again, but I know not all of us have been here as we have walked through this book. It's a history that's more than just an account of 12 plus men changing the ancient world through a message of forgiveness and love, but it is the story of God's power to redeem and restore a people in a world that's gone awry. And the world that we see in the first century church is not all that different when you get right down to it, then our world today, we see dramatically God's power once again this morning in this account in Acts chapter 19 from the ancient city of Ephesus. We're going to look at the middle part of chapter 19. Your inserts say that we're going to go all the way through to verse 41, but after Elizabeth had uh, printed or, or took the draft to the printers, uh, I realized I bit more than I could chew, and so we're going to stop at verse 20, and we'll save the second half of what you see in your insert uh, for next week as we uh, continue um, with what has happened. There's plenty for us to think about and look at in verses 11 uh, through 20. Those of you who were here last week will remember that we presently are in Ephesus, the ancient city of Ephesus, and we're there because that's where the Apostle Paul is. He's been traveling around the ancient world, uh, proclaiming the good news of Jesus of Nazareth, risen from the dead, ascended into heaven, and crucified for the sins of his people. Paul is presently in Ephesus, and he's going to be there for quite some time, he's teaching, he's preaching, he's building the church there. Uh, a church that, as we talked about last week, is a strategic place for ministry. It's an important place for the church to be deeply rooted and grounded. One of the things I talked about last week, just and then we'll get jump into the passage, is the fact that Ephesus is a thriving commercial port, and that's one of the, re- the reasons that Ephesus is such a strategic place in Paul's mind. But one of the things you also need to know about Ephesus for this week and next week in particular is that Ephesus was a center for magic and the occult. Ephesus boasted the temple of Artemis or Diana. Diana if you're Roman, Artemis if you're Greek. And it was a goddess, a pagan goddess, that had this huge temple that was considered at that time one of the wonders of the ancient world. And so people from all over the world would travel to Ephesus to be part of this, to be part of this cult and to see the splendor of her temple. And so when we read of what goes on here in chapter 19, both this week and next, we're not all that surprised. But it is a bit of a shock to our modern system. And that's what I want to talk about a bit 
this morning. And so let's listen. Uh, Acts chapter 19. I'm going to begin with verse 11 and read through verse 20. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon all of them. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. And many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. If we were to pick out one verse that is the key to understanding this passage, it would be verse 20. Verse 20 is the key. So the Word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. End of story. We can all go home now. Not really. No, it's the verse that closes this story and it's the verse that gives the reason for why Luke records this for us. Why the Holy Spirit gives it to us today. It's, it's another one of those summation statements from Luke that we have seen all along the way as we have walked through the book of Acts. Chapter 2, verse 7. Or excuse me, 2, verses 47. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. Chapter 9, verse 31, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Chapter 12, verse 24, But the word of God increased and multiplied. Chapter 16, verse 5, So the churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in numbers daily. Luke's primary concern in writing this account is to tell you That the apostles keep preaching, the Word keeps winding, and the church keeps rolling. And that's good news for us to hear. And we've heard it over and over and over again. And that's the prime thing that we need to take away from this, this book, is that despite all obstacles, God is building His church, He is building His people. But along the way, in addition to those summary statements, in addition to that one statement in chapter, in, in verse 20 of the Word of God continuing to increase and prevail mightily, 
Luke has been teaching us stuff all along because this is not just Luke's account. This is the Holy Spirit speaking to His people. And this chapter is no different. We learn much from this little account, this amazing account. And so in addition to that one verse, verse 20, which is the key to this section, I want us to camp out on just one truth for us to think about and and meditate on for the next few minutes. And it's this. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. He, I'm glad I got an amen. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. How we as a people need to hear this. We who are so easily gripped by fear. Fear of evil. Fear of terrorism. Fear of man's approval. Fear of our own tendency to sin. Fear of the future. Whatever fears we have. This truth flattens them all. That statement is the reason why Paul can write what he does in verse 20. But it's also a truth that he specifically shows us and works out for us here in this account. Of course, those of you who know the Scriptures know that that is not a point that I have crafted myself. Those are the words of John. 1 John 4, 4. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. But it's a promise that fits here. It's a promise that we need to hear here. The story reminds us of so many things about our God and about our existence. And I want to show us some of those under this umbrella, under this overarching summation that His power, His name, His Word is above all. We jump in in verse 11. Our passage opens like uh, like a movie trailer of sorts. At least that's kind of how I viewed it. And indeed, the content that follows is is worthy of, of Hollywood. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. The miracles are are nothing new in the book of Acts. The book of Acts is flooded with miracles. In God's design, the, the visible power of God's Spirit working through God's servant has helped carry the message of Jesus through the ancient world. And that was the point. The miracles are not ends of in and of themselves. They are messengers. They carry the word with them. Countless people have been healed. We've looked at some of those. Paul has escaped death. It was an extraordinary, it was a unique time. But Luke says something interesting here in verse 11 as he begins this account. Here he says that God was doing extraordinary miracles. In other words, God was doing miraculous miracles. God was doing Crazy stuff here. I mean, you've seen crazy. Now we're getting real crazy, is what Luke's saying. And keep in mind that the writer of this book is Dr. Luke. Dr. Luke. 
See, lest we be tempted to chalk up this account or the recording of this account to some mind that just delights in the fanciful and, and a mind that's not given to critical and scientific thought. But this is Dr. Luke. He knew science. And he says, this is real stuff. And so what are the miraculous miracles that are taking place in Ephesus? Well, it's crazy enough to have Paul to Paul speak to you and have the power of God bring your sight back. It's crazy enough to have Paul touch you and give you the ability to walk. But Luke records that handkerchiefs and aprons, mere claws that came in contact with the apostle, that they're doing the job in Paul's absence. Miraculous miracles. Now, it's a little weird how this is translated. When we think handkerchief, we think grandpa blowing his nose, maybe. These are not those kinds of handkerchiefs. The apron is not a cooking apron. No, these were basically sweat rags. These were things that Paul would use to to wipe himself down when he was working in the shop. He'd wear an apron to, to keep his clothes or his robes from getting all dirty. And so these are just simply sweaty, dirty things. And God is using these things to spread His name and His fame. In addition to our mind being like blown away, we got to ask, why in the world? Why? Well, I think two reasons. One, to show His power. But one of the things, and we'll return to that, but one of the things I want you to notice is the condescension of God through this very phenomenon in the ancient world. The condescension of God. You see, God, in His mercy and His love, He's meeting these ancient people right where they are. He wants them to know Him. And so he's wooing them in, in a way that speaks to them. The people of Ephesus, their hearts were bent towards celebrity, towards superstition. When you think about it, we're not all that different. I mean, professional athletes and rock stars, they they flip stuff in the crowd and we grab the sweaty headband or the sweaty batting glove and we treasure that thing and we're going to take that thing home and never wash it, just let it rot. Sadly, some of this has even sneaked into the modern church. You don't see it very often, but every once in a while you see some TV Huckster selling some special cloth to some undiscerning follower. Why did God do this? Was there room for misunderstanding? Of course there was room for misunderstanding. These things were never ends in and of themselves. They were signs. They were pointers to the Word. They were pointers to the Gospel alone that could bring true and complete healing. And so people in having their diseases healed would simply be drawn and brought to the truth of who God is. See, this is no scam. God is using this. 
He's displaying His power. He's spreading His fame through the weakest of vessels. Think back with me. You had Moses' rod, a stick. You had Balaam's donkey. And now you have Paul's sweat rags. The Lord is going to use whatever it takes to glorify His name. Greater is He that is in you than he that is in the world. What condescension on the part of the Lord here in Acts chapter 19. Of course, if you have Paul's rags circulating in the ancient world and things happening in response to those rags circulating, the word is going to get out. And indeed, the word got out. And news begins to fall on men like the seven sons of Sceva. Itinerant Jewish exorcists is how Luke describes them. And we don't know much more than that. We know that their type was not an anomaly in this time and place. There were many like the seven sons of Sceva. Itinerant means they traveled around. They didn't stay in one place. They weren't necessarily part of the community there in Ephesus. Their Jewishness was likely just their ethnicity and not their religious practices or their devotion to Yahweh. And the fact that they were exorcists, according to Luke, we don't really know what to do with that. Could it be that these men had somehow channeled some evil power to actually accomplish evil purposes? Maybe. Or could it be these guys were just hucksters that knew how to manipulate situations? Knew how to deceive people into thinking that they had power. Whatever the case with these men, they see what's going on with Paul and they say, we got to have some of that. Paul's garnered a reputation. He's likely taken some of their business, although of course that's Paul, that's the furthest from Paul's intent. And he's done it through this name. This person that he keeps proclaiming, the name of Jesus. And so, thinking about where we were last week, with, with minds that knew about Jesus, but with hearts that were far from Him. The sons of Sceva, likely fixated on their own financial gain, on their own reputation, and pride, they wielded or tried to wield a power that they didn't have a right to hold. The scene that Luke gives us is it's almost comical. It's a comical scene. They take the powerful name of Jesus upon their lips without the right to do so, and what happens? It blows up in their face. It literally backfires. And their name dropping turns suddenly into ridicule. The Spirit knows that no power is there. Even though the name of Jesus has been spoken, no power is there because the demons know that Jesus is not an amulet. He's not an incantation. He's a person. And He's a person who gives His Spirit to dwell in His followers. And so he says, Jesus, I know, Paul, I recognize, but who the heck 
are you? And then in display of, of raw, evil, spiritual power, one man completely humiliates, embarrasses, and pulverizes seven sons. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And we wonder, and you ask, but, but how, how does that make that point? How does that feed that truth? Well, for starters, contrast this story that we have here in Acts chapter 19 with another one that Luke records for us back in Luke chapter 8. Many of you remember this story. There Jesus is confronted with a man plagued with an evil spirit. We call him the Gerasene demoniac. And verse 28 of Luke chapter 8 says, And when he saw, that is, when the demon-possessed man saw Jesus, he cried out, and he fell down before him, and he said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High? I beg you, do not torment me. And Jesus asked, What is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. And what happens in this scene of Jesus versus the thousands? They beg, they beg, and Jesus gives them permission. Permission to leave that man and enter a herd of pigs. One man, thousands of demons, no match. What a contrast. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. You see, the Greeks and the Jews, they heard of what happened. Many of them knew of the stories of Jesus. Many of them knew of what Jesus had done while he was here on earth. Others had seen his servant Paul wield the same kind of impressive power. And so as a result, the name of Jesus was revered and was feared. The name above all names with no equal. And much the same happened, you'll remember, in chapter 5 of Acts when divine punishment came upon Ananias and Sapphira. And all the church heard about it. And they were filled with fear and awe. And they quickly learned that this God is not a God to be taken lightly. See, with this power of Jesus, this recognition of who He is, with that firmly in place, I think Luke gives us the account here to remind us of something that we need to be reminded of, maybe even more than, well, certainly more than the people of Ephesus needed to be reminded of this. And that is that this world of flesh and blood and sight and sound is just part of reality. It's just part of reality. I mean, things may look different. Things may sound different in modern day America than they did in first century Ephesus. But the reality of the world is still the same. 
C.S. Lewis wrote a wonderful little book that I've quoted to you before years ago. I know many of you are familiar with it. It's a little book called The Screwtape Letters. If you're not familiar with it, C.S. Lewis, of course, of uh, Chronicles of Narnia fame, C.S. Lewis wrote this little book, and it's a collection of fictitious letters written between two demons. Uncle Screwtape is writing to his pupil, Wormwood, his nephew, Wormwood. And so Screwtape, the whole book is Screwtape encouraging Wormwood in the art of capturing the human heart. It's a great little book. I encourage you to read it. Lots to think about. But in letter 7 of that book, he writes this. He says, My dear Wormwood, I wonder you should ask me whether it is essential to keep the patient, that is, whoever Wormwood is working with, whatever human he is working with, whether it is essential to keep the patient in ignorance of our own existence. The question, at least for the present phase of the struggle, has been answered for us by the high command. Our policy for the moment is to conceal ourselves. Of course, this has not always been so. We are really faced with a cruel dilemma. When the humans disbelieve in our existence, we lose all the pleasing results of direct terrorism. And we make no magicians. But on the other hand, when they believe in us, we can't make them materialists and skeptics. I do not think you will have much difficulty keeping your patient in the dark. The fact that devils are predominantly comic figures in the modern imagination will help you. If any faint suspicion of your existence begins to arise in his mind, suggest to him a picture of something in red tights and persuade him that since he cannot believe in that, he therefore cannot believe in you. You see, C.S. Lewis has done us a great service. He has reminded us, as Luke reminds us this morning, that we are not alone. And as Paul will write later to this very church in Ephesus, he will write, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. But we are modern people, you say. We live in an age of information. We live in an age of science. Hard facts based upon years of proven research. Yes, we do. And ours is a materialistic culture where the spiritual and the supernatural are just the stuff of entertainment. No more. It's not appropriate for real life. Well, let me tell you this. Tell that to so many of our brothers and sisters in other contexts, in other settings in the world. Tell that to brothers and sisters that I had contact with in the, in the nation of Uganda. I tell you, they deal with stuff that we don't. Evil is at work everywhere. 
differently there than it is here. But we must not forget what underlies it all. But as you remember that, greater is he who is in you than he that is in the world. You see, the fact of the matter is you're not a son of Sceva. You're a son or you're a daughter of the Most High. And because of that, the power to resist the devil is yours. You are united with Christ. And the power that raised Him from the dead is yours to resist temptation. I'm not talking exorcism. I'm not talking going and casting out demons. I'm talking about humbly submitting yourself to the Lord. Crying out in the midst of fear. Crying out in the midst of temptation. Crying out in the midst of despair. Recognizing that He who is in me is greater than He that is in the world. And that this world is not just flesh and bone, but it is principalities. It is spiritual forces of darkness. See, as we get back to the story, and I'll conclude with this, as we get back to the story, what, what effect does this whole episode have with the sons of Sceva? It transforms that culture. At least it begins to transform that culture. There's this giant book burning. And just to underline the point, Luke tells us the monetary value of the books that they threw and sacrificed in the name of Jesus as He changed their hearts, as He changed their practices, as they recognized that He was greater than anything that they were messing with, anything that they were faced with, anything that they were plagued with. And Luke tells us 50,000 pieces of silver, which modernly is somewhere in the ballpark of $6 million. You see, when the Gospel takes root, everything changes. So as we come to Acts chapter 19, verse 20, yes, the Word of God continues to multiply and increases mightily. But on top of that, in a world full of rivals, Jesus has none. And greater is He who is in you than he that is in the world. Therefore, cry out to him. Recognize the power you have by your union with him. And live in joy and live in freedom. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for this account, which we admit is so foreign from our experience, but reminds us so well and so powerfully of the fact that all that we see and taste and touch and and hear is, is not all that there is. Father, give us eyes of faith to see things as they really are. To live lives of dependence upon You as we cry out to the One who holds all power over all evil, over all brokenness. And use us, Father, as You see fit Your good purposes in the world. Glorify Yourself through us, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen.